I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that my student with autism has plenty of emotions, but they may not see the connection between that emotion that they feel and a piece of music that they're playing. But that doesn't mean it can't be expressive and beautiful to the listener who's hearing it, if it's executed well. Hi, I'm Ben Capelo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Scott Price. Scott Price currently serves as Carolina Distinguished Professor of Music at the University of South Carolina School of Music. He is internationally recognized for his work with students with autism and other special needs and has presented solo recitals and workshops for piano teachers throughout the United States and in Canada, South Korea, Thailand, Singapore, and Malaysia. Dr. Price is creator and editor-in-chief of the online piano pedagogy journal, Piano Pedagogy Forum, has recorded 39 compact discs of educational piano music for Alfred Publishing Company, and has published educational compositions with Alfred Publishing Company and the FJH Music Company. Awards include the Best of BGSU Outstanding Graduate Alumnus Award from Bowling Green State University in 2002, the 2008 MTNA Francis Clark Keyboard Pedagogy Award, being named a 2009 Music Teachers National Association Foundation Fellow, the 2012 Southeastern Conference Faculty Achievement Award for the University of South Carolina, and the 2019 Francis Clark Center for Keyboard Pedagogy Outstanding Service Recognition Award. Dr. Price is the founder and director of the Carolina Life Song Initiative dedicated to providing piano lessons and music experiences for students with special needs and in fostering best practices in teaching and teacher training. In this episode, we spoke about teaching piano to students with autism. I really enjoyed speaking with Dr. Price, and I'm inspired by how passionate he is in his advocacy for this group of students. I hope you enjoy. Scott Price, thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ben. Thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you for creating this terrific resource for, resource for music teachers. Thank you. Um, today, I'd like to talk about teaching piano to autistic students. But before we go into any details, I'd actually like to start by analyzing that first sentence that I just said. Um, so when I took a special, special education class in graduate school, I was taught to use uh, person-first identification when discussing these students. But I've read in recent years that some autistic advocates have encouraged identity-first identification, which is what I used when I said autistic students. Can you clarify the distinction between person-first and identity-first and talk about how you approach finding a respectful vocabulary when describing these students? Well, sure. Um, the differences between person-first and identity-first, uh, in person-first language, that is used as an attempt to sort of include people. So when I'm talking about a student with autism, I'm always talking about the student first as a person. And then the autism, the label, whether it's vision impairments, hearing impairments, uh, Down syndrome, whatever uh, it may be, that just informs my pedagogy. And for the most part, uh, most of my parents, they appreciate the use of person first language and actually advocate for it. However, there are people in the community who are advocating for identity first language, which is putting the label first. I am an autistic person. I'm a blind person. I am a Down syndrome person. Mm -hmm. And that's perfectly fine as well. Mm -hmm. um, basically, the way that I approach it is I just ask the parents or the person, if it's an adult, uh, how would you like for me to refer to you? Person first yeah. or identity first? And then I just make a note and be respectful to their language. 
it really kind of opens up a wonderful discussion into this whole idea of inclusion and always having our students who may have differences or be differently abled. I don't like that word disability, although we need to yeah. use it as being yeah. part of and not less than. I always want mm -hmm. to realize that I've got a full 100% person in front of me and then I just need to teach a little differently or communicate a little differently based upon the label. Hmm. That well, that's interesting. Okay, so you in general, to be sure I understand, your default is to use person first unless the student or their parents have explicitly requested otherwise? Yeah, that's my default. That's just here in my okay. studio. But if it works differently for other people in their studios, um, great. That's what they should do. I just think it's, it's about being respectful to the person. Yeah, that's definitely the goal. Okay, well, in light of that for today's interview, I will do my best to use person first. Um, now, again, some big picture questions before we talk specifically about teaching piano to these students. I wanna just discuss the term autism. Um, can you talk about the current definition of autism and discuss how this has changed over time as the DSM has been updated? Yeah, sure. So for, for me as a piano teacher and other piano teachers and other music teachers, um, just quick general definitions are that autism is a developmental mm -hmm. disability. Mm -hmm. And we tend to talk about it as being on a spectrum. And that means at one end of the spectrum, you might have somebody who is, again, we're going to use these words, high functioning, uh, mm -hmm. which, which aren't really great to use when we're talking mm -hmm. about people. We have to have something. Um, mm -hmm. So you may not know that person has autism. All the way to the other end of the spectrum where you may have somebody who's very low functioning and they may need 24 hour a day, seven day a week care and assistance. So in general, um, we'll talk about, in terms of music teaching, someone with autism having a deficit or a difference in social communication. And, and just very quickly, what that means is that when you and I meet each other, we have a whole set of social behaviors that we have mm -hmm. learned. Maybe we've never even been taught, we just observed. So you know how much eye contact to make, how close to stand to me. We know uh, how long to shake a hand. Uh, how hard to squeeze, how hard to let go, how much eye contact to make, etc. A person with autism may not have been able to observe these things, learn them, and then transfer them from one situation to another. So we spend a lot of time in the lessons teaching the behaviors to be able to function within the lesson and get ready to learn. Uh, secondly, there's a difference or a deficit in social communication. Many of our students who have autism or other uh, disabilities as well they may not be verbal. They may not speak. They may have developmental delays, which mean that they have a very limited vocabulary and understanding of words and how those words are used in different contexts. Um, so, you know, if I say something like a uh, quarter for a quarter, quarter, half note, well, a quarter is a quarter, yeah. it's 25 cents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then we talk about that word in terms of money, in terms of time, in terms of context-specific note naming, uh, and it can mean a whole host of different things, and we just assume our students can navigate that. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, uh, a difference in imaginative thought, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, so differences between the DSM-4 version 4 and the DSM version 5, and for your listeners, that's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Mm -hmm. So in version 4, we used to have autism described in different ways. There was autism, autism spectrum disorder, and then there Asperger's syndrome, yeah. and then PDD-NOS, which was pervasive developmental delay, not otherwise specified, and then a few other things. 
So what happened between version 4 and version 5 was PDD-NOS went away, Asperger's went away, and then we just had autism with three different levels. And so uh, basically what that means for us as music teachers is just to know that we may have people coming in with identifying labels and they may still say, well, I have Asperger's syndrome or my, my daughter has Asperger's syndrome mm-hmm. or my son is PDD-NOS. And it's just important to know in general what those things mean and what the differences are. Now, a question that I get a lot from people is, well, what if the parents don't tell me? Or what if they don't know? Or yeah. what if they don't want to disclose? Mm-hmm. And in that case, you know, it's not appropriate for me as a music teacher to make a diagnosis because I'm not a, I'm not a autism mm-hmm. professional or a medical professional. But I can do what I do for every other student. And that is I can observe them, see how they interact and communicate, see what their challenges may be. And then I just adjust my mm-hmm. teaching. Yeah, this is something I'm experiencing in my current studio. I have two students who I suspect um, have autism, but I don't want to just ask that. And so I think what you're saying makes sense that you can make adjustments and try different strategies and see what works for any student. And you don't necessarily need to have a diagnosis in order to know um, how best to work with them. And a lot of the strategies we're going to discuss today don't necessarily only work for students with autism. No, I think think, a person with autism, they have a wonderful gift to teach us what is truly meaningful, relevant, and productive Mm -hmm. in our teaching, and what also may be just the opposite, what is meaningless, irrelevant, and Mm -hmm. counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the strategies that I've read you describing um, as recommendations for how to work with students with autism are now things that I've tried, at least to some extent, with all of my students. So I think there's a lot of overlap here. And again, you don't need a diagnosis to know how best to work with these students. And when it comes to adaptive teaching, uh, I and my colleagues, we we sort of have an inside joke where we say, look, whatever works, works. Yeah, exactly. For that student. If that helps that student, Great. Uh-huh. And, and I want to go back to earlier in this interview, you were saying that when we have conversations with other people, we tend to come with social baggage and we know how to communicate and eye contact. And so I want to discuss this a little bit further. Um, one feature of autism that you've described uh, a lot in terms of how to speak to students with autism is the use of literal language. Um, sometimes when we have conversations in general, we tend to use a lot of abstractions without even being aware that we're doing this. And this can cause hindrances when um, teaching piano to these students. So what are some examples of some types of abstractions that we may tend to instinctually use when teaching piano to these students that we might want to shy away from? Well, sure. I think you said it very, very well in that when you and I talk to each other, we use shared cultural experiences, we use slang, we use pop culture references. Um, if we are paying to each other, paying attention to each other's vocal tone and facial expressions, we may not even finish thoughts or sentences once we see an agreement has been reached. Uh, but for a student with autism who may not have a vocabulary, we actually have to teach a word and what the meaning of that word is and the meaning of that word in context. And so uh, an example that I often use in my workshops is with a traditional neurotypical student, if I have a crescendo in the music, I might say, oh, look here and measure nine through measure 12, you've got a crescendo. So the phrase needs to grow and you need to go to here. Yeah. That's an abstract use of the word grow. Yeah. Yeah. We know what that means. And our students have the ability to take that sort of analogy or metaphor, whatever we're using and apply it and figure it out and watch a teacher model. Uh, Mm -hmm. But with a student with autism, if you think about what I just said, 
the phrase grows. That's the most ridiculous yeah. thing <laughs> because, you know, people grow, grass grows, animals grow. And if you have a particularly bright student, they might say, I think that's wrong because when I play a key on the piano, the hammer strikes the string and then the sound immediately starts to decay so it can't grow. And first of all, the piano doesn't grow. It stays the same all the time. And you know what? They're right. <laughs> or if I say, and go to here in the phrase, well, you go home. You go to school. You don't go to here in the phrase. <laughs> At that particular point, you just press a key down. And so what I need to say to my student is, all right, this little C-R-E-S-C -E period means an Italian word. It's called crescendo. It means that we need to get louder in the music. And to get louder in the music, we have to use different finger strengths when we play the key. So on the first note in measure nine, I need with finger number one to play very gently, finger number two more strong, finger number three even more strong, finger number four stronger, and finger number five the strongest. And then we coach that a little bit but then my student can play a beautifully graded crescendo. Mm -hmm. It's just been explained in terms yeah. of how they know exactly what to do with their body to make that sound happen. I have a follow-up question. How would this work when talking about the emotional aspect of music? Because to say that a, a piece of music is angry or happy is sort of an abstraction. Uh -huh. Well, um, I think that opens up a doorway into a really wonderful discussion about how Less ability to express a thought doesn't mean less thoughts. And less ability to express an emotion doesn't mean less emotion. But when we are um, working in these literal specific terms, we're giving our students a toolbox to use at the piano to make music. And then as they begin to absorb more patterns, more meters, more rhythms, and they begin to be acculturated into this wonderful sound world that we have, then we create a safe space where they can begin to have a vocabulary, develop a vocabulary to communicate to us, I'm sad today, or I'm happy today, or I think this piece is. Or if you think about it, you and I could listen to the same piece of music, I could think it was happy and you could think it was sad. But in terms of giving an informed beautifully executed performance, it's really these literal, specific things that we do with our bodies to create the sound. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that my student with autism has plenty of emotions, but they may not see the connection between that emotion that they feel and a piece of music that they're playing. But that doesn't mean it can't be expressive and beautiful to the listener who's hearing it, if it's executed well. The student may or may not make a personal connection with the piece, but they will make a personal connection with how they were taught and how they did it. And then we get into terms of validation and about uh, interpersonal, social interaction, and about the fact that the, the piano playing and the music lesson is about more than piano playing and the music lesson. Mm -hmm. Certainly we want them to, to progress and to learn mm -hmm. to play the correct notes, correct fingerings expressively, but it's really about more than that. It's about them having a person in their life, about them being included in an experience, about them being able to do something that every other kid can do, and about their families seeing their children do something that every other child can do, and about being included in the wider social experience and about being part of and not less mm -hmm. than.
That's great. Well, that's a great goal to work towards. Um, also related to this idea of kind of thinking literally, you've written about the fact that many students with autism tend to feel more at ease when they, in their head, have a clear structure of what's going to happen in the lesson. And sometimes the, some of the spontaneities that we do in lessons can overwhelm them. Can you discuss how we can make the lesson structure as transparent as possible to these students so we don't overwhelm them? Oh, sure. Um, and one of the things that I do with all of my students is once they come to the studio, we have to teach them all of the behaviors to be able to learn, to get ready to do the learning process. So they have to learn things like stand outside quietly, don't bang on the door, mm. wait for me <laughs> to open the door and say hello. Then I need, I'll ask you how you're doing. You need to answer me. Then you can come in, put your books here, get your piano, get your uh, pencil ready and everything. Then sit quietly and wait for the lesson to begin. And then we have a little chat. Uh, and that's designed because a lot of our students with autism have hypersensitivity issues. And I never know what's going on during the day. They may be oversensitive to light they, or sounds or something may have happened during the day that has upset them. Perhaps they haven't slept for two days. Perhaps their medications are wearing off. Perhaps they had dietary issues which uh, mean that they didn't eat that day. So maybe they're crashing from not having enough nutrition at that point. But it gives us a chance for them to get centered, to decompress from all of those hyperstimuli. Also gives them a chance to get used to me. And it gives me a chance to also see what their emotional state is, their mental state, their physical state, their attention, and begin to craft that lesson experience for them. And then I sit down and say, are you ready to begin? And I always ask permission. And I always do it with what I like to call the perpetual smile. Because anything new or different can be anxiety triggering and it can be a behavioral trigger. And so I want them to know what's going to happen in the lesson. And then when they say yes, um, I usually just give them the rundown for the lesson and say, okay, first we are going to do right hand, left hand, then finger numbers, mm -hmm. then we'll do key names, then we'll do lesson book, then we'll do performance book, then we'll do <laughs> improvisation, and then it'll be time to say goodbye. Are you ready to begin right hand, left hand? And they will remember every single thing in the list. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not um, changes in things that happen. But when you have a very clear structure, then they are more able to process new things and to switch tracks. And I know uh, when, when I'm writing things or giving workshops, it sounds like everything is cut and dried and perfect and unfolds beautifully. It doesn't. It can be really messy at times. Sometimes we have to do a lot of improvisation in the teaching. And sometimes we have to drop something from the lesson plan. Uh, it, it's just in the moment. Yeah, so to be sure I understand, let's say we do have a lesson plan. And at the top of the lesson, we say to the student, I'm going to do this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And then one part of the lesson is taking a little longer than we expected. That doesn't mean that we have to just drop it in the middle just to be sure we get through the lesson plan that we described at the beginning of the lesson. As long as we just give some structure at the beginning of the lesson, it's okay if we depart a little or don't get through everything. Yeah, and I always include the student to say, can we, ah, can you? That okay. way it's not autocratic, me forcing them into a situation. They are included and they have part of a choice. And that, that's that social interaction that we're practicing. And it's a window yeah. into this nonverbal world that, that is communication. Everything we do mm -hmm. uh, and say is communication. And sometimes mm -hmm. that's all you've got are some behaviors. Right. Uh. Mm -hmm. I've also read um, that it, 
with students with autism, sometimes transitioning between activities can be a bit stressful. Do you have any thoughts about once we're moving from one activity to another, what you say? Oh, sure. That's a great point. Um, And what I always want to do is uh, open an activity, ask for that permission, begin the activity, tell them how we're going to learn this, go through the activity, then always make sure that they know what to practice that they understood everything and that I've created safe space where they can say, no, I didn't understand it. And then I close the activity and say, are you ready to go on? Now can we do? And then we're ready to move into the next thing. And I'm a big believer too. And if I need to do something 50 times over six weeks with a student for them to get it, I'll do it. I would rather not do it 49 times and give up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I've seen you say in interviews that um, students with autism appreciate repetition, um, perhaps more so than neurotypical students in a lot of ways. Or they may need it. Yeah, I have one student who, <laughs> he, he literally, I have to tell him, we are finished with this piece, which means you don't practice it again. Because he <laughs> thinks they're all so much fun that he will literally practice Aww. every piece that he's ever learned just for the joy of it. I'm jealous. I wish all of my students were like that. Speaking of your students, I want to talk about one student of yours in particular who I believe was one of your first students with autism named uh, Brittany, who you've spoken about in many instances. Um, I have a student who I believe is experiencing a similar issue with technique that Brittany did, which is only using the finger that is needed at that moment and then the other fingers are not on top of the piano or playing with one finger at a time rather than freely going back and forth between all of the fingers. This is what um, one of my students has and he uses his pinky in the left hand to play every note. Um, Even though he's very musically advanced in many other ways, it's just for some reason I have a very hard time getting him to put all of his fingers on the piano and use all of them with his left hand. Is this common with students with autism and how do you advise working with them on this? Well, uh, so it leads into some wonderful stories. Uh, Firstly, I don't know your student and I haven't seen that student, so I can't give any specific information. Mm -hmm. But for your listeners, this student that you were talking about was born four months premature blind from birth, had never seen anyone play the piano, and had basically taught herself to play by um, playing a tiny electronic keyboard and learning which keys corresponded with the pre-recorded sounds. So in her case, um, she would often place her thumb on the fallboard, the wood below the keyboard, um, Mm. because she had to find distance and measure distance because of her blindness. So we did a lot of work with just having her realize that she did have other fingers and that they could be used in certain ways to make sounds. So if I've got a student who's resistant to using the other fingers on the hand, I might say, you know, you're the most wonderful piano player with your fifth finger ever in the whole world. Congratulations. (laughs) Do you think we can do that again? And can you do it with finger number two? Do you think we can do it again? And can you do it with finger number three? And then perhaps I have to write in all of the finger numbers over every single note in the music. Mm. Great. I'll do that if that helps my student. And then I just have to be gently insistent and say, (laughs) I need for you to use this fingering when you practice. Will you do that for me? Do you promise? And then make it part of their practice strategy at home. And then perhaps we just have to keep reviewing that for six months until they get it. I will do it. Is that how long it took with Brittany? Uh, no, I think in her case, she was so precocious that once she realized she could do more, then she was all about it. Hmm. And then, you know, in some cases, our students have fine motor skill delays, which mean that they just can't 
play with really advanced fingering or really complex fingering. But you know, if somebody's using just finger number two, you can still teach them to play a beautiful legato just by sliding across the keys as they need it. Mm -hmm. But I really like this sequencing that you're suggesting of if they only play with one finger at a time, allow them to, for the next step, keep playing one finger at a time, but do it with different fingers. So now only play with your pinky, now only play with your thumb, and then that can sequence into using your whole hand. That's a very good Yeah, and some sequence. of my colleagues uh, will often talk about using social stories. And what that is, is that my, my student with autism may not be able to imagine themselves in a situation doing a certain thing, but what they can do is listen to a story where I could say, well, you know, Mr. Ben was playing the piano, and when he played this piece, he had to use fingers number one, three, two, four, and five, so he could play it this way. Can you watch my hand? Now, do you think you could play it like Mr. Ben? And you can play that three, is so two, interesting. Four, five. That way, they can observe somebody else doing something and then copy mm. that. And you would say that for a lot of different areas of feedback, well, that rather everything. than and these, and I should oh. say that these are things that these kids are doing in all areas of their life. So it's not like mm -hmm. something brand new that they're doing mm -hmm. in the piano lesson. It's just the context is a little different. Hmm. Okay, so going back to this student of mine that I was describing, I would say he uh, is musically very, very gifted in a large number of ways, and he's very specifically interested in classic rock, and it's like an encyclopedic knowledge of classic rock. But then keeping one finger on the piano is difficult for him, and this relates to another feature of autism that I've read about, which is that um, they tend to be very interested in what they're interested in and sometimes <laughs> kind of ignore other elements. Um, I've read that this is called weak central coherence, um, um, when we as teachers notice students with autism kind of latching on and being really, really interested in one specific aspect of music and a, a lot less interested in other elements of what we're trying to teach them, how do you advise that we react? Like, should we just give in and then go with what they're interested in or should we try to nudge towards more of a well-rounded approach? Well, number one, as a teacher, I never give in. Uh, I'm always <laughs> trying to help that student. The only time I ever give in is if it's becoming a severe behavioral trigger or if the parents contact me and say, you know, I don't think we should do this today. It's been a rough day mm -hmm. at school. Uh, and then I'll give in and not do things. Or in one case, I had a music therapist call me and this particular student we were both working with, she said, don't do anything with B flat. For some reason, it's bothering him and he's screaming. Wow. And so the, for some, for several months, this particular pitch, something about it would just cause him to scream. And then he got over it. So I just avoided B flats. But I generally don't encounter those problems with my students because it's all about the routine. And I set up the routine mm -hmm. of all the things that we're going to do. And then they are not resistant to anything uh, mm -hmm. in general for me because uh, we've set up the structure so that one thing leads to another and it all becomes part of the, the package. Well, that's good advice to know that. Um if a student with autism is very specifically interested in one aspect, they can drift away from that as long as the sequencing is made clear and they have a clear lesson structure from the top of the lesson rather than kind of unexpectedly thrusting it on them. Or sometimes you can you can use it as a reward too. Say, well, we can do this if you do this. If you do this oh, for that's a good suggestion. If you do this for sixty seconds, then you can do this for forty five seconds. Mm. Uh, th those kinds of reward systems or breaks. Sometimes they just need a break. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about multi-sensory learning. Earlier in this interview, you were talking about nonverbal students, and sometimes they communicate with pictures more easily than with words. Um, 
and I've read that some even use a picture exchange communication system. Can you talk about use of pictures and imagery with students who are nonverbal or not as verbal as neurotypical students? Oh, sure. That uh, picture exchange system is called PEX for short. Um, if that's appropriate for that student and they're doing it a lot, that's great to use. Instead of me just saying what their routine is going to be for the lesson, perhaps it's pictures or icons um, that are that are made through any kind of software or through a program called BoardMaker. And sometimes your students just see the icon that's on the wall that they're going to do next, or perhaps they can even choose if they need to. Well, if you do this, what would you like to do next? Um, so we can use all of those things to communicate. And they aren't necessarily unique to the piano lesson. Often what I'm doing is coordinating with the parents and with what, what's going on at school and doing a lot of those same things in the piano lesson. So they're therapists, they're music therapists, they're occupational therapists, they're parents, and their teachers can be our best partners in helping that student be successful. And they can also be wonderful educators for us as well on mm -hmm. tools we can use during the mm -hmm. lesson. Great. Before we go, do you have any other thoughts of, or advice about effectively working with students with autism? Oh, just give them a chance. You know, these are, these are people just like everybody else. They just need a little bit different communication and adaptive pedagogy. And mm -hmm. if you give a student a chance, you're not going to break them. These are highly resilient people. And at best, we'll have a wonderful experience where they learn. And at worst, they'll ignore you. And then we, it's, it's really, it's on the teacher then. It's on me. If I'm being ignored, I'm not creating the right type of adaptive pedagogy. Or it just is going to take time to develop the relationship. Right. I think that relates a lot to, um, a few weeks ago, I had uh, Selena Pistresi on, who um, is the founder of Notable Piano and does a lot of work with special education. And the big phrase she kept using was presume competence. And I think that's <laughs> what, what, a lot, what, what you're saying reminds me of. Um, can you tell us, uh, before we go, a little bit about what you're up to now and how our listeners can learn more about you? Oh, sure. Um, if you're interested in uh, adaptive pedagogy, and this doesn't have to be just for piano. These things can be adapted uh, for other situations, other instruments. Uh, people might want to choose, uh, check out the Inclusive Piano Teaching blog, which mm -hmm. I co-author with two other people, Melissa Martiros and Beth Bauer. That's available free of charge at keyboardpedagogy.org. That's mm -hmm. the Francis Clark Center for Keyboard Pedagogy. Um, the Piano Magazine website, which is clavierecompanion.com. There are any number of articles and webinars uh, that I and other colleagues have done. Uh, you do have to be a subscriber to access those things. Uh, there's the Inclusive Teaching Course, also through the Francis Clark Center for Keyboard Pedagogy, which is a 16-unit course that I developed specifically working with students with who are special learners. Uh, teachers can also find other information on the Music Teachers National Association 2021 virtual conference website. I believe that's still up until June 1st. And then we'll also be having sessions on inclusion and adaptive teaching at the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy, uh, which will be late in July as well. And then if your teachers are also working with the Royal Conservatory of Music, um, if they are part of that teacher portal, there are also some webinars and articles there as well that I've done. Well, I think the work you're doing is so crucial and so helpful. So I really appreciate um, everything you do. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks, Ben. There, It's a wonderful group of people. And I really do believe that they are the teachers. I'm just a student and they can really teach us what is working and what isn't working in our educational system. So thanks so much. 
Absolutely. And thanks to all of you for listening to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. If you have any feedback about the episode you just heard or suggestions in general for the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me through the contact page at www.bencapolo.com. Thanks again.